Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today, we are privileged to be joined by the one and only Rabbi Pesach Krohn, the author of many Art Scroll volumes. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to talk to you, and we'll get right into it. It's an honor to be here. I love Art Scroll. I always loved it from the time they were on Coney Island Avenue. I just would hang around there as much as I could. The people are just the most wonderful, dedicated people to Claw Yisrael, and I'm so proud to be part of it. Art Scroll's proud to have you as part of the family. Thank you. And I was going to say that your name has become synonymous with Art Scroll. Uh, oh, I believe right. your first book on Brismila was published in 1985, 35 years ago, with Art Scroll. And we actually have a lineup here, thanks to our <laughs> wonderful friends in the Art Scroll warehouse. They were able to pull out all your books for us and line it up here so beautifully. And I have your first book here, Brismila. And the thing that jumped out at me was looking through it, and we could show the viewers how similar, almost exact, the text layout is today to what we're looking at from 35 years ago. With all the advents of, of and advances of printing and design, Ripshia Brander, the genius of design, created something that has sustained. You know, well, could you comment on that? Just the fact that, look at the fonts, the pagination is virtually identical to what we see today. Isn't that well, unbelievable? One, one of the things that always impressed me uh, with Rabbi Meir Zlotowicz and Rabbi Nassim Sherman, and then eventually when I got to know Rabbi Shia Brander, is their tremendous professionalism. Everything that they did always had to be in such a way, not only that it was artistically beautiful, but that it made a Kiddushem Shemayim. It made Yiddishkeit look good. And I could never forget when that first uh, Sefer came out on Megillah Sester, 1976. It was so incredible because, first of all, you had an articulate person who wrote the overview, and that was Rabbi Nassim Sherman. And then the commentary was brilliant. And the way Shia Branda put it together, that cover became like a standard. It was so beautifully, artistically done. And they followed that pattern since then. And all the books are like that. It is incredible. And I want to share something that I don't know if people know. I actually just heard it recently. I met Reb Avi Shulman at a Simcha. And he told me, number one, that he was the one who made the Shidduch between Reb Meir's Ladowitz and Reb Nassim Sherman, wow. which well, I did not close. know. But then he added something fascinating. You have said over the story probably dozens of times about how Reb Meir dedicated himself to writing a commentary on the Golas Esther, Lila Nishmas, Reb Meir Fogel. Reb Avi told me that when the manuscript was finished and Reb Meir was looking for a publisher, he went around to various publishing houses, including Feldheim, and all the publishing houses turned him down. They felt that uh, it was nice, but it wouldn't sell. That was, the way, that was the way he described it. And I was thinking to myself, could you imagine at the time? I'm sure it was to his utter disappointment that no one would take the book. I'm sure he was devastated. He worked so hard on the manuscript, no one wants to publish it. But could you imagine if one of those publishing houses did publish it? I don't know what would have happened with the next volume. Maybe they would have published that as well. And who knows if Art Scroll would have materialized. 
what a, a, a lesson in hashkocha and in responding to seeming adversity by understanding that obviously everything is menashamayim. I just thought, oh, what an eye-opener. Well, I'll tell you something. You have hit on a very, very delicate point. Just last night, I gave one of the most difficult drushes that I ever gave. Now, there was a fellow, his name is Ramesha Morgenstern. He lost a daughter, Raisi, or Raisi, a fellow, that's what he called his daughter, five years ago in an accident in Arizona. And um, he was absolutely devastated. And I remember speaking to him and telling him that he should start a support group for fathers who lost a child. And it took a long time. Now, I've spoken for women who have lost children. It's a wonderful organization called Tapestry. And eventually, Moshe Morgenstern started this organization. And I spoke for them last night. And just this point that you're talking about is something that I said. When my father, Olver Shalom, was very sick, and my brother, Rab Kalman, and I were in Washington Heights, Rab Schwab, I will never forget. We went to the hospital to visit my father, and uh, I came back to eat the Suda with Rab Schwab and his Rebetzin, and he said, how's your father? And I said, I have betochen that he'll be well. And he got so stern with me, and he said, betochen does not mean that your father's gonna get well. I mean, I was terrified when he told it to me. I was all of 21. He said, betochen means that Hashem has a master plan, and maybe one day you'll understand it. Mm-hmm. But difficult things happen in life, and sometimes we get to understand it. And that which you just said about Rameis Lodowitz is a perfect example. I'm sure he was devastated because he was a good writer and he had this manuscript ready and he probably figured how could people not see that it's such a wonderful thing. And yet because he was devastated and then he had to go out and start his own, look what it's accomplished, thousands of volumes. Changed Klai Yisrael, the way changed Klai Yisrael, the way they daven, the way they learn, Gemara and Chumash and Medrash and everything, every aspect of Yiddishkeit, it was all because he was rejected in a sense. So sometimes a person goes through a difficult time and can't understand why is Hashem making this happen? And Meir was able to live to see why it happened because he, he changed the world. Just recently I was uh, sitting in Rib Gedalia Zlanowitz's office uh, with another visitor and we saw on a high shelf small but thick loose leaves and we asked him what that is and, he, and Rav Gedalia said those are my father's writings <laughs> the original writings of Megillah Esther and then the subsequent Megillah right. and he pulled them down and we looked through them yeah painstakingly written in longhand yeah uh, and it was just an insight first of all into his brilliance you see the original writing before yeah. it was edited he wrote like a poet beautifully First of all, his handwriting is beautiful. Right. And you see the depth of his understanding, his Havana. He was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. And it really gave me an extra appreciation of yeah. who Reb Meir was and what his accomplishment is and how it's really everlasting and lives on. And he's given us all an opportunity to be educated and to learn. And people like yourself, an opportunity to use your unbelievable talent. Well, to reach I tell people. you, it's just so incredible. I'm so indebted, my whole family is so indebted to Rab Meir, Rab Nussan, and Rab Shia. I will never forget how it happened, actually. You know, I knew Rab Meir from camp. Oh, yeah. You know, he was uh, an artist in camp. He was, was in Camp, camp Agoda. In Camp Agoda. Right, and of course he made the banners. Nobody made a banner. You know, he was the greatest artist of all. 
And so I knew him as an artist, you know, as a lefty artist. You know, he was a lefty, and uh, I, 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 that's, that's where I knew him from. That's where I knew Mayor Fogel, the one he dedicated uh, Megillah Sester to. And I remember when Art Scroll came out with Megillah Sester, I was fascinated by it. Now, at that time, I was going to a shear called LICOR, Long Island Commission of Rabbis, Rabbi David Cohen was the Rav, and he gave the shear to the Rabbanim in Long Island, and he spoke about this Sefer that had just come out. And I always loved writing as a child, because mm -hmm. I learned it from my mother. You know, we would talk about writing, and she gave me the love of writing. When we I should was, mention we have one of the books yeah, here. Yeah, the way it I was. I believe the right. way it was was written by right. your mother, my mother right. Hindi, right? Hindi Krohn. Right, and, and that's one of the things we're so proud of. I think we're the only family that has three generations of writers for Art Scroll. My mother, Allah Shalom, and uh, you know she wrote the way it was, and uh, of course myself, Baruch Hashem, and uh, my daughter, Baruch Hashem, Chaviva Krohn Pfeiffer, who's written a couple of the children's books. But uh, getting back to what I was telling you was that um, when this Megillus Esther came out, I thought, wow, you know, there's a place for Jewish people to write something good. You know, when I was growing up, there was not that much Jewish writing. I wrote some stories for Elamenu and, uh, you know, the way the war was won. I made up a story and it was printed. What year was that that you were writing uh, for Elamenu? It was shortly after high school, so I must have been about, uh, I graduated in 62, so maybe 68 or maybe 70 or whatever. But there weren't that yeah. many platforms for no, someone who wanted to write and get a message all. out there. And then, and then Rabbi Nissen Walpin was just so wonderful to me. He was so special. Every time you saw me, he wouldn't even say Shalom Aleichem. Just give me a pen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was great. And I wrote a few articles in the Jewish Observer. And one of the things I'll never forget, it just happened to be, that uh, in one of the Jewish observers, I was published right before my article was Rabbi Nassim Sherman's Ooh. article. And uh, I was so happy to be close to him. You know, I didn't really know him. Yeah. I knew that he was the menial of uh, Turret Mima, or, you know, and he was a Rebbe in Stolen, or he was the menial in Stolen as well. And uh, so I was so proud that my article was next to him. Who would ever believe that? And then I remember one time, I, I always learned with Rabbi David Cohn, which I still learn with him today. Um, Baruch Hashem would learn once a week. And um, I met Mayor Zlotowitz in the driveway. He was visiting Rob David. He loves Rob David. Sure. And Rob David was, in a sense, his Rebbe and his guidepost and his mentor. And I said to Rob uh, Mayer, you know, I'd love to write for, for, for you. He said, well, you could write anything you want and we'll edit it. You know, you just write it. So I said, well, can I do Kehelas? Because, you know, they had just done Megillah Sester and then I think yeah. Echel came out and uh, Rus. And he said, no, the five Megillus we're doing ourselves. So uh, I said, okay, so l l let me think about something. So I thought about Mishlei. Mishlei, that would be a good idea. Mm. So it's probably the dumbest thing I ever thought of, and I'll tell you why. Um, so i never forget. I went to the 42nd Street Library. I don't tell this too often. And I, I, I got about a tenth svarim, you know, there. You know, svarim on the Mishlei. And then I bought a few svarim. And I knew I can't start in the beginning. Let, let me start right in the middle. I started with Perikut Olive. And I figured, out, you know, I'll start writing commentary and, you know, they'll edit it. And then I saw this is impossible because Mishle, Mishle, every, every sentence, every passing is, is a book by itself. Sure. There's no storyline. So 
what am I going to write, 400 books? You know, like Mishnah, he's got so many psukim, and each one is a different concept. And it's a, obviously, Shlom HaMelech wrote it. You know, so it's tremendous. So I had written a couple of psukim, and I saw it's going to take over my life. It's impossible. So I was devastated, because I really wanted to write for Art Scroll. You know, they were doing well, and people were beginning to compliment them and say what they were accomplishing for Klal Yisrael. So then, I, then they wrote on Kriyashma, little pamphlet. Then they wrote on Kaddish. And I figured, oh my goodness, they're writing on topics. I've got a great topic to write on. I'll write on Brismila. Yeah, well, nobody could do it better than me. I was a male already a couple years, right. and I knew the Ashkenazic customs, the Sephardic customs, about babies being yellow, and you know, about names, and Alderman Hogan. You know, that would be great. So I called Mayor Zlotowitz back because you know, he knew that I was starting Mishlei and then it just didn't work out. So uh, he said, okay, why don't you write a, a chapter? And Rav Nassin and I will look at it and uh, we'll see if it's worth writing, if we'll do it. I said, okay, fine, but don't let anybody else do it, please. Just give me the opportunity. And I went home and I said to my mother, Ma, we gotta write something. We gotta do this because, you know, for me as a male, that I wrote a book for art school on Bruce Miller, you know, that would be the greatest advertisement, right? So we decided that we're gonna write a commentary on the Trilis. I figured, you know, there's a text there, there's something, I don't have to start, you know, so the Trilis on Bruce Miller, and I'll write a commentary on it, and let's see how it goes. And so we worked on it, you know, we took the Trilis, and I translated them, and I found commentary in different forum, and I presented it. And Rav Nassin, I'll never forget this. Rav Nassin, I'm going to try not to cry. <laughs> Rav Nassin and Rav Meir, they were on Coney Island Avenue. And um, I was waiting, you know, for them to get back to me. And, uh, and they said, it's good. We have, uh, I think we could do something. Green light. The green light. And two things happened. I came to the office and um, I said, do I have a deadline? And I'll never forget what Mayor Zlatowicz said. You have no deadline, but I want you to keep this in mind as you're writing the book. You have to write the type of book so that nobody in their right mind in the next 10 years is gonna write a book in English on Bruce Miller. In other words, it has to be so all-encompassing mm. that you gotta cover everything. That's the deadline. We're not worried about the time. Just make sure that it's all-encompassing. Were you intimidated by that? No, I was thrilled okay. because I, I felt that I could do it because I had experience as a mile. I knew what had to be in the book. And then the thing that was so touching to me, of course, today nobody has telephone books anymore, right? But Nelson Sherman had a little telephone book in his pocket, and he took out the telephone book, and he wrote my name in his book with my telephone number. And then he put it, like I always say, next to his heart. And he said, now you're one of us. That was, that I should be one of them was just so special. I'll never forget that little gesture. Sure. You know, I'm one of them. Because you were an aspiring writer. Yeah. And that I, just made you feel. Made you feel that. Validated I, you. Yeah, validated. Exactly. That's the right That's word. Wonderful. And, um, and then, of course, you know, I spent a tremendous amount of time uh, my favorite part was writing on names mm -hmm. because as a male, many, many times I help people give a Hebrew name, especially I do many Brisson for non from people, yeah. and they're always looking for names. You know, they'll have the English name, 
you know, Justin or Brian or whatever, and they don't know what to use for the Hebrew name. I've heard you say that you actually keep a log of every, oh, every single, single bris, bris oh, of course. you've performed with the every, name of the child. Oh, of course. Just, and what uh, was your motivation to do that? I'll from tell you what, because my father also did that, and mm. the reason that he did it and the reason I did it just happened just the other day. I got a call from somebody that I did a bris, that was about um, 12 years ago. The kid's going to have a bar mitzvah. They forgot what they named him in Hebrew. Wow. And I always give a certificate. In the back of the bris milah book, there's also a certificate. And then has the Hebrew name. And um, they just didn't remember the name. Wow. It wasn't really so connected to the boy's English name. Mm -hmm. That's why they didn't remember it. But I had the record. And the second I just went downstairs and got it out. You know, Incredible. and told it to them. Wow. I mean, now, how long did it take you to put together the bris milah book? So that took about two and a half years. Because I wanted to make it not only the minhagim, and not only the tefillahs, and the extra tefillahs, you know, that there are on benching. And um, I wanted to talk about certain topics. Names was one of them. The significance of eight. Eight is very important in Yiddishkeit. There's eight strands on tzitzis. There's eight big day kahuna. And there's eight generations from Avram until they went out of Mitzrayim. Eight, uh, eight is Lamai Lominateva. Exactly, know. right, from the morale. Right. And so therefore I figured I would write about that. And then I wrote about the Sandik. And uh, in general, I, I wanted to make some very, very strong essays. And somebody who was fabulous, fabulous in the translation of the Tfilis was Avi Gold. Sure. Avi Gold worked for Oscar Oscar for legend, many. Yeah, yeah really. He, he was just absolutely incredible. And uh, he could put together the tefillahs on the translation. He was absolutely amazing. And I'll tell you something very interesting. I don't tell this often, but, but it just shows, you know, what I felt about what they are. I remember one time I had a certain problem. I forgot what it was. And I went to Abnassan Sherman, you know, in his office in Coney Island Avenue. And I asked him for a bracha. And he said, why, why are you coming to me? I mean, there's so many chashev Rambonin that you could go to. I said, Abnassan, is there anybody else who is... Marbet's Torah, like you, I mean, think about it. It's all over the world. There's no greater Habatzah's Torah than you in art school. So, of course, you have more schosim than anybody. And that's how I looked at it. And, then, and this was even before the Shas. So, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's humbling to be part of them. And uh, I'll never forget in 19, well, they started in 76, and then they had their 10th year anniversary. I remember Rab Giftal Shalom was one of the guest speakers. And uh, I was invited to that dinner that they had. It was fabulous to sit among those Heilige people that uh, just changed the way, as I said before, the way people daven, the way people learned. It was just, it's all art school. What was it like for you back in 1985 when you first held your book that you pined for for so long? I'll tell you And you exactly. were finally holding it. What, what was you that like? You will not believe. I'll never forget. It was a maze line. It was this kitchen. And I came on a Friday, Erev Shabbos, and um, he told me that he had the book. Mm -hmm. And I had worked on it two and a half years. Now, I had never seen a book that I published because this was the first book, right? So I'm waiting for this thick book, mm -hmm. right? This thick hardcover. And he gives me a soft cover that was so thin, I thought I would faint. I said, did you print everything that I wrote? He said, it's all here. I said, I can't believe, how could it be all here? Look at this. And I felt, oy fey, this, this looks like nothing. You know, it was a thin paperback book. But of course it was all in there. You know, the hardcover made it look a little better. But, right. uh, but I'll never forget then what I did was, at that time, in the beginning, 
I had many, many soft cover editions printed, and I would give it out at every bris. Mm -hmm. And then a couple days later, after the bris, the people would call me and say, you know, we wish we had this before. It was so good. So then I started a new thing. Then I had UPS come to my house every single day. And the moment I got a call, it's still Adayam is there. The day I get a call, really? I fill out a UPS label and send them a book. And like this, they can read it, you know, a couple days before. And there's a tremendous amount of information in there. After completing the Brismila book, what prompted you to go the story route and start writing up stories? Well, I'll tell you, I really feel that I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to a dear friend of mine, Hanoch Teller. Hanoch is a brilliant writer, and uh, in Eretz Yisrael, I think it was at the end of the 80s, or right around that time when the Bris Mila book had come out, so shortly after 1985, there was a contest in Eretz Yisrael for writers to write about Yerushalayim. And he, among, I'm sure, must have been a thousand writers, put a piece together about the significance of Yerushalayim and the history of Yerushalayim, and he won the contest. And um, I know that it was printed. I was very impressed with the way he wrote. And then shortly afterwards, he wrote his first book of stories, and I think it was called Sold, S-O-U-L-E-D. And then I began thinking, hey, wait a second. This guy's writing stories. I have access to stories that nobody has because I was very close to Rabshon Shadron, my brothers Colin and Arya were even closer than I was at that time. And, uh, you know, the, the American public... Certainly the young generation didn't know Yiddish, they didn't know Hebrew, and he had such great stories with such wonderful lessons. And um, I thought, you know, that would be a great idea. So I called him and I said, uh, you know, that maybe we should write your stories in English and it would be for the public. And I told him about Art Scroll. And he said, yeah, that would be a great idea. And he wanted that I should get started right away. But I couldn't do it right away because I was still involved in the Brismila book. I couldn't have my head involved in two books at one time. It was just too much. And then The Sitter was coming out just at that time. And of course, they had 100,000 orders in advance before The Sitter even hit the market. And you can understand that there cannot even be one tiny mistake in A Sitter. We're not talking about a market book that you, you know, you made a mistake, so fine, the next time you respell the word or whatever. I mean, this is, you're talking to Tashem. Can't mix up a segel and a tzere or a comments and a pasach. So they had to do it over and over and over till it was absolutely perfect. But that delayed the publication of the Brismila book. And so, between me and you and the 100,000 people that are going to watch this, he got somebody else to start writing the stories. Really? Yeah, I was devastated. Oh, I was <laughs> devastated. Because I gave him the idea. But, you know, he, he felt it had to be done. But, you know, sometimes somebody's mistake is your, uh, your advantage. And what that fellow did was he was translating literally mm. for Absalom's Yiddish to English. And you can't do that. You can't translate one language to the other. You've got to get the flow of what it was. And so by the time he realized that, because people were telling him, listen, it's not readable in English. So then I started writing. And I had a cousin who's Nebuchadnezzar, the Ulam Emes Chaim David Ackerman, who learned in Chevron Yeshiva. And what he did was that he took the stories that I sent him in English, mm -hmm. and he sat with Rab Shalom and he translated them in Yiddish for Rab Shalom. Is that and, to, for the veracity to make sure yes, that they were right, correct? Yes, right, right, to make sure that it was correct. And Rab Shalom started writing me notes on the stories, wow. how I wrote them, whether he liked it or not. And then, 
it, it, you know, I guess his hand was hurting because he was just writing on every single story, and my goal was to have about 95, 100 stories. And then he would tell me, Oh, just as say good ogitaich the maisa, you know, like it was so beautiful how you touched this maisa. And then he would say, What's Mr. Meshuga? Does us land from them maisa? It has a different meaning altogether. So, because of that, a certain element happened in the market books that I've carried it till this day, and that is the story is in one font. Because the first book that was only his stories, mm-hmm. so the story was all his. But the lesson from it was in a different font and in an indented chapter, indented paragraph, I should say, and that was my lesson from it. And he went along with that because like this, the story remains the story. Whatever anybody wants to learn from it, you know, that's fine. The way you learn it and you understand it, that's in a different typeface. So it was clear that the lesson was yours and he right. gave you the liberty exactly, of doing it. Exactly, exactly. And that's how I carried it in every book. Even the stories that were not from him mm-hmm. and all the other subsequent books, I let the story stand for itself and then the lesson that I learned from it. And, you know, the Gemara says that Kizera uh, God Lovan, that the Mon was like a white coriander seed, but the Kizera God, God comes from the word Magid. And so a story is like the Mon. The Mon could be different things to different people, had a different taste. And that's how I touch the Gemara. The story can have different flavor to different people. So I write the story, and you learn what you like from it, but I'm going to tell you what I learned from it. Mm-hmm. You could agree with me or you could not agree. You know, that's your prerogative. But in that way, it's like Mun. And, you know, then it worked. And what happened was, after the Magad Speaks came out, and that really took off. No, because nobody, Oscar had never printed a book on stories, and that was selling left and right. And I figured that's it, you know, I, I got all the top Shalom stories, what there is. You know, when one time I was in art school, and Nelson Sherman says to me, you know, you gotta write again. I said, what should I write? He said, listen to me. He said, I just got back from South Africa, and the Rebbe was reading from your book to the Talmudim. He says, you know how far South Africa is from here? Thousands and thousands of miles, and your stories are having effect on children in South Africa. I had never been to South Africa before. Since then, I've been there many times. I love going there. But he said, if those Rebbeim in South Africa are teaching the kids from your story, you've got to find stories. He said, where am I going to find them? He said, go back there. I'm showing my son. I got most of his good stories already. He said, well, then you're going to have to find others. And that's what happened. That's, the first book was The Maggot Speaks, because it was only him. And then the second book was Around the Maggot's Table. Because when you're sitting around the Maggot's Table, the Maggot tells some stories, and other people tell stories. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. I got some more stories from Rab Shalom, but basically I started asking different Rabbonim, and I started asking Askonim, and I started asking people about stories, and I started writing them down. And that's why the second one was called Around the Maggot's mm-hmm. Table. And it still had Rab Shalom's picture on the second book because right. many of the stories were from him. But the idea was that that's how it started going. And once I started asking people for stories, people would stop me in the street and tell me a story. And, you know, they wanted to know if I know how to spell their name because they wanted to be printed. <laughs> but, and, and, and then, you know, every time I've written a book, I, I figured, okay, that's the end. There's nothing else that can be, but Baruch Hashem, it's been going on. And what's interesting is that your first book on stories is called The Magid Speaks. Right. And The Magid was referring to Rav Shalom Shvadron. Yes, right. What happened over time is that you became known as The Magid. And I tell you, that was very embarrassing for me because... <laughs> 
you know, I felt that that's an exalted title. I didn't want to take that on myself. And that's why every book, it's the Illuminations of the Magid, you know, the original Magid, Reflections of the Magid, the original Magid, the Splendor of the Magid, because I can't, I, I don't think I've ever called myself the Magid. I know many, many people refer to it. I remember Rabbi Brafman, I'll show him. He was the first one who introduced me that way. I still remember Shalom Shudas and Yeshiva Farakway when he mentioned that. I was like so enamored and so thrilled and, and humbled, you know, that I should be called that. But I'll tell you a little secret. When Abshalom was here the first time, and my father was alive at that time, I was so amazed at what he could do with an audience. He could make them cry, he could make them laugh, and he, he, he moved them so. And I said to my father, it's hard to believe, but I said to my father, I said, Pa, is it possible to be a Magid in America? And my father said, in America, you could become whatever you want to become. Now, when I was 18, 19, I was not thinking of becoming a Magid, but just the fact that he told me that you could become anything that you want, well, you know, it was, that was liberating. <laughs> you know? But I will say that I think the reason why you became a known as the Magid is because of your unbelievable oratory skills. So you started off writing, right. but it was the ability, like you said, to connect to an audience right. and to articulate in a way yeah. that resonates and that penetrates yeah. and that's compelling. Yeah. And that leads me to my next question. At what point did you know that besides for being able to convey messages via the written word that you'd be able to do it orally by being an orator. When, when well, did that I'll tell happen? you. I'll tell you how that happened. It's very interesting because many, many people, when they see a book, they think, well, if the fellow can write a story, maybe he could tell a story. Now, in camp, of course, I was a counselor and I was a learning rebbe, so I had some oratory uh, practice, so to speak. You know, I was a color war general, you know, and I always loved, you know, speaking. I'm a leader and things like that, but never, you know, on a broad scale in the family, I always spoke at Sheva Brachas. But I'll never forget, Rabbi Grossman, actually, I was his counselor in camp. He was known as Barry Grossman, but today, Rabbi And he called me to speak at a graduation. He was running a Russian school. And the book had just come out in March, I think it was, or I think so, that's when the first Magad book came out. And he called me for a graduation in June. And it started from there. Now, of course, in the beginning, you don't speak at the Aguda Convention, you know, or at Sinai and Daba in South Africa, you know, or in Kinlas in England, you know, for a thousand people. But, you know, it slowly builds. And once I began speaking and began to hone the speaking skills, how to make it presentable, how to make it orderly, and then to review, I'll never forget the first time that I had spoken together with Rebetzin Zahava Bronstein, Allah Shalom, she was such a tzaddikis. And I reviewed at the end of the speech, as I always do, she said to me, you know, that's a great way of speaking. You must do that at every speech. And that became like a, uh, a trademark right. that so I always review. Right. Reviewing. I always review at the end. And, and it, it, there's a very important lesson there because it shows that there's a structure, mm -hmm. that there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, and it just flows. And many, many people ask me, do you ever get nervous when you speak? And I always tell people the same thing. I never get nervous when I speak. Really? Why not? I always get nervous when I prepare. When I'm preparing, I'm sweating bullets. I could sit at a table for three hours in a row. My wife says, what are you doing at the table three hours in a row? And I said, I'm thinking and I'm writing and I'm rewriting and putting the cards in order and figuring out what is going to make the audience listen and follow in such a way 
that they won't get lost. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, and that's I, I, I think that's part of it. <laughs> Somebody just, you know, one of Hanania's friends, uh, Shmuley Rosenberg, just told me yesterday, he said, you know, you should uh, have a course in teaching people how to speak publicly. Sure. You know, so I, I was know. gonna ask you, yeah. growing, growing up, were there any speakers who you aspired to emulate? That's a great and question. And whose style maybe you incorporated into your own I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you some of the great speakers that I loved. John Kennedy was a fabulous speaker. Abba Ibn, oh, what a speaker. I think I heard the speech that he gave in the UN after the Six Day War. I think I've heard it 30 times. You know, I loved that speech. It was fabulous. He didn't mention Hashem's name in there. That hurt me. You know, he was an Israeli guy. How could you not say Hashem's name? That it was a miracle of the Six Day War, but for whatever reason, you know. But Rabbi Jacobowitz, Emmanuel Jacobowitz, oh, the eloquence of this man, Rabbi Kifter, Rabbi Schwab, these people who spoke, Rabbi Yankov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Yankov wasn't in order, but the Emes and the, the Seichel Hayashar of these people, when they got up to speak, or Rabbi Gifta was, of course, very powerful. So what, do you, what makes a master orator? Is it the content? Is it the, the, ma the mastery of the language? Is it the cadence? Is it the energy? I mean, the, it's all especially those things today, that you, we're inundated yeah. with so many right. different speakers. So speakers right. Everyone has their own style. Right. What do right. you, as the master I think, speaker, I think what that, do you think I, it is? I think that what you just touched on, it's all those things. First of all, the audience has to feel that you respect them. That's the first thing. I always wear cufflinks when I speak. Always, oh. always, always. I mean, even on Zoom, I would never do a Zoom without a tie and a jacket. Mm -hmm. How do you speak to an audience without a tie and a jacket? So you respect them, you dress accordingly, mm -hmm. and you never talk down to people, and you're always trying to build people. Tell people they're good, but they can be better. Don't tell people they're bad. Nobody wants to hear that they're bad. And many times a speaker, you know, will try to show, you know, he'll give them Musar, especially in Elul, tell them how awful they are, and they're gonna burn a Gehenna, you know, and that uh, Rosh Hashanah's the Yemen din, and they better be afraid, you know, of what they've done. It's not my style. You know, so you have to build people. And I think that's one thing. You have to connect to the people and never, ever say anything that you don't believe in. And never, ever ask an audience to do something that you don't do. You know, they'll see through it. They'll see through it. If you ask them, you want them to do certain things, whatever, to dab in a certain part. I'm very big believer in saying, Altira after Olenu. I always say it. I would never ask people I, to say it if, the, if I didn't do it. I tell people to say Kobonis. You know, there's certain things, you know, to give uh, stuck every day. There's a wonderful organization called dailygiving.org. I'm involved with that, but that's only I can ask people to do that because I do it. So I, I think that you have to have a powerful story and don't get bogged down with the details. You know, if you went to Eretz Yisrael, nobody cares if you went to Air France or El Al or, you know, Delta Airlines. That's not important, you know. And you've got to get to the main point of the story and then relate to the story to the lesson that you want to give. And it's true, you have to face your audience. I never, ever read a speech. Ever, don't ever read a speech. Never. Because then you I've lose. Yeah, then you, you have lose. notes? Yeah, I have notes. What well, I want to say, general. Have you ever used a teleprompter? No, 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 no. So you're never. speaking extemporaneously? Right, I'm just like I'm speaking you to have, you right now. You I, it's a conversation. To give you structure. Right, exactly. Are you, exactly. Ever, are you ever nervous that you may not have the write formulation of words and you may well, kind of... Well, sometimes if I want a keyword, I may write that down because okay. I have it in my mind. 
-hmm. you know what I want to say, so I'll write down that key word. Another thing, I never, ever start with a joke. Mm. Many, many speakers start with jokes. You say, Milsa de Bedichas. Yeah, but most of the jokes are not funny. And what happens is when the joke is not funny, you turn off half the audience. What did he think? What did this guy think? That I'm so stupid, you know, that I think that's funny. It's not well, funny. Well, humor is tricky because yeah, what, right. one, what some people find funny, right. others don't. I always right. say with historian inspiration, yeah. very often you'll find that common theme that will right. inspire everyone. Right. With a but joke, with it's a not joke that is way. not there. There's only one joke, one speaker that I know that started with a joke that was the greatest joke that I ever heard in front of an audience. It was absolutely fabulous. And that was Rabbi Beryl Wine. There's nobody like him anyway. Sure. And um, he and I were at a, was supposed to speak for the Nefesh organization many, many years ago. And I said to Mrs. London, who called us, I'm not speaking after him. You know, I got to speak first because, you know, this guy knows everything. You know, what am I going to say? So I'll never forget, it was preparing for Gaula. And I'm telling you, I prepared for that speech at probably two months, at least two, three months. And I, I'm telling you, I, a week before the speech, I called Rabbi Wine. And I said, you know, what are you going to say? Because I'm very well prepared. I don't want to say something if, you know, you're going to say it. He said, well, I didn't even think about it yet. You know, I'm preparing two and a half months, and he, he's not even <laughs> thinking about it, right? Okay. There were a thousand people in Montauk High School and Borough Park that night. I'll never forget. And I'm telling you, I covered that topic from head to toe, preparing for Gula. He gets up. He said one sentence, and he had the whole audience in his back pocket that he continued to drush it. He said, and I can't imitate a Chicago accent, but he said, I learned a lesson in the rabbinate a long time ago. When the mile gets finished, there's very little left for the rabbi to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Oh, gosh. He had the audience screaming in laughter. And, and then he gave his speech. But unless you have a, a crack like that, don't start with a joke. How many hours does it take you to prepare one speech, would you say? Oh, it's days, days and days, really. You think about it all the time, you know. Because you're constantly compiling information. Yeah, and compiling you, you know, information. You probably have an archive now, for example, of stories, yeah, right? Yeah, that is true. But, like, for example, right now, um, the last 10 years, Baruch Hashem, I've been going to, at least 10 years, to England and Elo. Right. I'm not going to go this year because of, you know, they don't have the main audiences are mm -hmm. not getting together, and even it's a very big show, but there's a thousand people that come, so you can't social distance. So we're gonna do, Hanania's gonna film a video, mm -hmm. but it's a brand new topic. It's a great topic, but I have to think a lot about it, mm -hmm. which, which I really have to get into, and that is, how are we gonna daven this year Rosh Hashanah without our regular oilam that gets us into the davening? And what if the regular chazan can't be there? And the regular chazan is the one who usually is ma'orid the oilam tefillah. So, you know, you might not be in the regular shul that you're davening. You're not going to be with your crowd. You might not even be with your bal tefillah. How are you going to connect to Hashem on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? You know, these are all givens. You know, the bal tefillah is there, the nagunim are there, and the oilam is there, but they're not. Wow, that's a, that's a tough speech to prepare. I really have to think about that. I don't have the answers yet, but... Mm -hmm. You know, we have to get them. I've once noted a difference between, let's say, those who work in music and entertain and inspire and those who write or speak. A singer, he could sing his hit song for 40 years and sing the same song again and again, and the crowd will love it. Right. A speaker, 
cannot reuse his material. And especially in a world today where things are recorded. It's so true. What do you do? I daven. <laughs> you know, at one, at one time before recordings and right. before videos, you could say a speech in one shul right. and say it in another and another, and you're good to go. It's Till true. the story makes the rounds. Nowadays, yeah. your yeah. material is it's only true. as good as the day you say it. Well, you know, it is true to a point, especially when it goes on TorahAnytime.com, which sure. is one of the great organizations in Israel. And that goes all over. And my wife many times tells me, don't give it to them. Don't mm -hmm. tell them you're speaking, you know, in Brooklyn because they come and record it and then you're stuck in Los Angeles. But my policy is, and I keep a record of every single speech, just like I keep a record For of real? every, oh, every, sure, of course. Every, so every speech one. you've ever given? Every single one. With the topic and the content? Yeah, yeah, oh, sure. I can tell you, I can, you tell me a speech that I gave in a date, I'll, I'll have a few in five seconds. Wow. Yeah, it's not on computer, it's all written out, but whatever. Although now I have it on computer and I can find it. And um, so if I gave a speech in Los Angeles, I won't give that speech again. But if I gave it in Chicago and they listened to it, you know, I can't be blamed for that. You know, so I may repeat in Los Angeles what I said in Chicago. Right. Or I could say in South Africa, you know, what I said in Switzerland. But um, in the same place, I would never repeat the same speech. Now you're... We're looking here, Kanai Nahara, all the books you've produced. Yeah. It's a real nachas. What do you see? What's your next step? Well, you know, I had a tremendous, tremendous hatzlocha with the Haggadah. Now, um, people have been after me for years that I should write a Haggadah. And then two years ago, I decided, you know, now's the time. And the way I decided to write the Haggadah was different than any Haggadah that was ever printed. In other words, I'm not going to write a commentary because Baruch Hashem, there are a thousand of Perushim on the Haggadah. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take every part, like Havadim Ayinu. Now, Havadim, you know what Havadim stands for? David ben Yishai Avdecham Meshichacha. So, in the first word of the answer that the Father gives, he's talking about Mashiach. That's the goal. It's amazing. Now, and um, so what I did was I took the theme of every piece, whether it was Chad Gadya or Echad Miyadeh or whatever, and um, wrote a story about something about the essence of that piece. So it wasn't a commentary on the piece, but somebody could read it. Mm -hmm. Now, and I worked very, very hard on it, and Oswald has the greatest editors in the world, Rabbi Nassim Sherman, who edits all my stuff, and um, I'll tell you a great story about that in a second. And from Eisner, Mrs. Felice Eisner. Sure. They are fabulous. There's no editors like them in the world. And they've been doing my, my last number of books. And that I, I said to Rab Nassim, I said, you know, why don't we publish a book of the way I gave you the story and the way you edited, <laughs> and people will learn how to write. He says, I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> but, but he's masterful. It's just, there's no way. I. I love, I love seeing what he does with the sentences and, and the structure. He's fabulous. So um, what happens is that I, I give in the stories. You know, they edit it and they bring it back to me. They send it to me and then, and they're working very, very, very diligently. So now when the Haggadah came out, it was right before Purim, before COVID. Now, I had worked very hard. I worked a year and a half on it. And when COVID happened, I figured that's it, finished. You know, it's not going to sell. All the stores are closed. David Shikaholfin, that Oscar moved to Rahway. And Governor Murphy allowed them to be open even when COVID started in New York. So they were able to sell thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of Haggadahs, even though the stores were closed. People were calling and they were ordering them. 
And to me, one of the most rewarding things was that so many almanas, so many people told me that they were alone at the Seder and they read the Haggadah till 2.30 in the morning. Wow. You can't imagine. So many almanas said to me, it was me, you, and Hashem. Wow. And we loved it. We read it both nights. One lady wrote me. She said, I never said Shiashirim at a Seder before in my life. But you had it there and you explained it. And I was alone and I was up till 2.30 reading it. And it was so special. So Gedalia just couldn't get enough of the emails. You know, I was getting all these emails and I forwarded it to him. He said, you've got to do something else. I said, what? So I had an idea, but you know, of course they always have better ideas. <laughs> and he said to me, what you should write is on Elul, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. And do like a Haggadah, just like you did. Mm-hmm. Don't write a Perish on the Machser. So the working title is the Magid on the Machser, but it's not going to be on the Machser only. It's on Elul, it's on Tshuva, Tefillah, Tzedakah, all mm-hmm. these wonderful stories that I've picked up in different places, many of them new, some of them from the Magid books. And it's going to be on the different type, on Asana Toikev, on mm-hmm. Tshuva, Tefillah, and Tzedakah, on Kihene Kachomer, you know, all these things, the Great. theme of them, and Rav Nassim is just masterful. Now, the story that I just gave him the other day, and Felice Eisner just gave it me back today, the final editing. I don't know if you know that in 1943 in Denmark, Hitler and Himmler, they wanted to finish off the Yidden. And they had planned, they had planned that on the night of Rosh Hashanah, when all the Yidden were in shuls, they were gonna round up with trucks around all the shuls, take the Yidden, get them on ships, and ship them to concentration camps. And there was one guy, his name was Duckwitz. He was a Nazi, but he was in the government in Denmark. And he was a German representative. He hated the Nazis. He hated their cruelty. And he decided he's going to, you know, betray his country and tell the Jews that they got to get out. And that's what he did. He let the Jewish people know through the president of the Jewish society who let the rabbi know. And on the day of Slichas, two days before Rosh Hashanah, the Rav got up, Rabbi Melchor, and he said, Rabbi Isai, we're not saying Slichas. I want you to go home right now and I want you to run. Tell everybody they gotta run up north because this guy Duckwitz went to Sweden to try to convince the Swedish Prime Minister that the Jews would come over by boat and he should take them, they should take them. And it's hard to believe, there are a few books about this and I I, I was I gonna them. ask where the story yeah. is documented. Yeah, so there's uh, Mrs. Sharfstein who I know in Crown Heights. She grew up in Stockholm, she wrote a book, it was morning, it was evening. Mm-hmm. or it was evening, it was morning, and Rabbi Bamberger wrote a book about called The Viking Jews, and he has the whole story about it, how the Yidden ran. 6,000 Yidden were saved within two weeks, from before Rosh Hashanah until after Yom Kippur. And they stayed in Sweden, some for 19, some for 22 months, and what's shocking is when they came back, they went into their houses, everything was still on the table the way they said it for Rosh Hashanah. The Bechers were there, the candelabras were there, the silverware was there. The Dane did not let anybody go into the Yiddish houses. That's how Rabbi Bernberger ends his book. It was just unbelievable. So there's one of the stories that yeah, you're, right, you're including right, in the volume. Right, right. And you hope to have this done for next, next year's... Next year, Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, not this year, Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. Do, do you foresee doing, th- then following it up with something on Hanukkah, Purim? Who and knows? I don't yeah, know. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe we'll do another market book of stories. I don't know. There's something that I've wanted to, to ask some of yeah. our guests. What, other than a Rabbi Krohn book, of course, or Chaviva's book, or your mother's book, what is your favorite book or two? 
that you could think of that either impacted you or that you particularly oh, enjoyed? Oh, not the ones that I wrote? Not the ones that you oh. wrote. That's a good question. I have to think about that. What book? You know, there was a Rabbi Donin many years ago who wrote a book, To Be a Jew. That was fabulous. That made a big ratio on me. Um, trying to think. I mean, I've gotten all of Rav Schwab's books, selected speeches and mm -hmm. things like that. Now, of your books, anyone that in particular well, was Well, Traveling with the Magid was the most difficult one to write. Uh, that was about our trip to Lithuania. Right. And that had to include the history and what went on on the trip and the Divrei Torah of the Gedalim. So that was three books in one. Right. And it's a coffee table book. I was hoping to write something on Poland. Maybe one day I would do that. Mm -hmm. Then there's a book called The Glittering World of Chesed, sure. which is fabulous ideas of Chesed of Klal Yisrael in different places all over the world. And of course, the Brismila book is something that I'm very proud of. You know, that was Absolutely. the first one. And Baruch uh, Hashem, you know, it's, uh, I'm very, very gratified. You've enriched us all. We love the stories. Uh, yeah, I hope My so. only question is whether you're a better writer than a speaker or a better speaker than a writer, but either way. Or a better way. mild than both of them. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just did Hananiah's grandson. But he, <laughs> yeah, just that's right, Mazel Tov on Yenu Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, we should mention that it's Hananiah who's the brilliance behind making us look good on the right. show. I mean, that's we true. sit, we talk, but someone's right. got to be behind the camera. Yeah, the camera. 100%. And Hananiah and his team at Kol Ram oh, do a fabulous, fabulous job, so we yeah. thank all of them. And yeah. uh, we thank you for joining us today, for giving us uh, some insight into what has become a tremendous career of inspiring chizuk, inspiring all of us to be better people, to be better Avdeh Hashem. And the Mitzvah Hashem, you should continue to use your Amen. considerable Amen. talents. Amen. 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 And I just want to encourage all the listeners that have your kids read a lot so that they can learn to write and they can learn to speak because... Today, with technology the way it is, you could be speaking here in New Jersey, in Rahway, New Jersey, and somebody in Chile, in Switzerland, is going to be inspired by it. And that's what Torah Anytime is all about. You know, you have speakers in Queens, but it, it goes all over the world. So if you know how to write and you know how to speak, you have such a possibility of reaching tens of thousands of people. That's why it is so important. 100%. I can tell read. you just from being here at Oscar, we see where orders go to, it's worth a visit just to, really? the, just to the warehouse to yeah. see the addresses of where books and Svarim and Gemaras and Sedurim and Chumashim are going to. And it is inspiring yeah. that the written Baruch word Hashem. has that power to go, right. to go all over. Right. And like you said, Well, that's being the orator well. you know, motto, the written word is forever. Exactly. It really is. So we thank you again. And I thank Rabbi Meir Zlatowitz Shalom for the opportunities that he's given me and Rabbi Nassim Yabad Lachayim and Shia, Eli Krohn, all these guys make me look good, believe me. <laughs> you know, it's not me. But Roch uh, I'm so grateful. We are fortunate, and thanks for, your, for enhancing the Art Scroll brand you. as you have. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Atzlach Okay, and atzlach and everything you do. Thank you.